book of Colossians here this morning. And uh, for the month of December, we're just going to kind of change gears here just for a little bit. Uh, for those of you that are uh, know that uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, uh, we'll actually pick up Ephesians again uh, come the beginning of the year. And uh, so this month of December, I, I just really wanted to uh, focus our attention on um, what the Lord uh, says in his word concerning the birth of Christ. And really, we're going to look at some, some different passages of scripture that maybe we really don't apply to the birth of Christ. I mean, some of the things that we always think about when uh, we're talking about the birth of Christ is like in Luke chapter number 2. Um, or we, we talk about uh, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. His name would be called Emmanuel. Um, so I really want to focus on some attention on some verses and, and just kind of take a step back and really look at who Jesus Christ is and what that actually entailed for him uh, to come uh, to this world and be born. Um, in John chapter 1, verse number 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who was that? Who, who was that? That was Jesus, uh, that, he was, uh, that he was born into this world. And, and when, you, when you really examine the life of Christ... There is nobody that actually comes close to who he is. Now, you cannot compare him to anybody. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being greater than angels. Uh, he's greater than Moses. Uh, so Jesus is unique. Uh, he is the only one that had the fullness of God uh, dwelling in him. Uh, God only stepped into his creation once. And that is, that is something to, to think about, uh, to really take note of that Christ did that. So I've chosen a, a few passages here uh, that we're going to cover over the next few weeks. And, and hopefully through these, through these scriptures, you know, sometimes I think um, preachers kind of get accused of, of, you know, telling everybody how they're supposed to live. And yes, that's, that's true. The word of God corrects us, instructs us. But I believe that if we just behold the majesty of Christ and we see how glorious he really is, that itself should motivate us to, to how, we, how we respond to him and how we, how we interact with him, uh, especially around this time uh, during Christmas time. So let's look at this first passage that's going to show us as Jesus as being more uh, than just a story. So we're going to be in the book of Colossians. And we're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to go on down through uh, verse number 20. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse number 15 uh, through verse number 20. So let's take a look here, first of all. Number one, the image of the invisible God in creation. Look what Paul writes here. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Christmas is more than just a story 
Because it's about the image of the invisible God in creation. When we come to this passage here, we see Christ as he is revealed. I mean, God, God does not, uh, God does not uh, shroud Christ at all. I mean, he's just revealed. And he is the image of the invisible God. Why would Paul say this? Well, if you know some things about church history and, and what was going on during this time, one of the prevailing false doctrines that was being taught uh, in, the, in the early uh, church and even in, in the culture at that time was a, was, a, was a doctrine called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically taught that salvation comes by gaining knowledge. That's the word gnosis, which means uh, knowledge. And this teaching was particularly popular among the Greeks because the Greeks uh, really prided themselves in knowledge. And so they believed here that Jesus was a spiritual divine being and did not become flesh or suffer on the cross. Instead, he either merely seemed to be human or temporarily inhabited a human being named Jesus. But Paul counters that and he says, no, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we read this phrase that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Paul is arguing for the full divinity that he is God, that Jesus is God. And the pre-existence of Christ, that he always existed. Christ did not have a beginning. Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. Christ always existed. And so, what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Let's, let's think about that. I mean, an image of an invisible God. Does that make sense to you? How can an image be that of an invisible God. It boggles my mind. But that's what God says in his word. In John 1.14, we read it previously before, but that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ was the fullness of God. But here in the text, look what it says here. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see, there are a lot of people that, that try to explain who Jesus Christ is. Some say that he's less than God. Some say that he's one of many gods. Some say that he's a created being. Some people say that he's a high angel. He's a brother of Lucifer. Some people say that he's a good teacher, a good person, or a good prophet. But let the Bible speak for itself. And what does the Bible say? It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. An image of the invisible God. How can we explain that? We don't. We accept it as truth from God's word and we believe it. But what is the meaning of this image? Christ is not mere likeness of the Father, but he is an essential manifestation and embodiment of the Father. He is the fullness of God. Listen to what Colossians 1.19 says. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse number 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is totally God. He is the fullness of God. So the invisible God becomes visible to man, according to Jesus' words in John 1.18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In John 14.9, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So it implies that Jesus has perfect equality with the Father. The Son is the Father's image except in respect that he is not the Father. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So it is in Jesus that God is revealed. He's the exact reproduction. He is the perfect replica. He is God in human flesh. And Satan has blinded people's eyes that they cannot see that. Lest the gospel of Christ should shine unto them. And the image of Christ would be revealed. But what about creation here? Because it says that he is the image of the invisible God in creation. How is Jesus the image of the invisible God in creation? And what does this have to do with the birth of Christ? Well, see, when we grasp who Christ is, that the child who came into the world was the God who made everything, it changes how we view the Christmas story. It's more than just a story. He is the author and he is the completer of our faith. Christ is God. Look at these next set of verses here. Look what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There are many cults out there such as uh, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons who, who love to use this verse as a proof text to try to prove to you and try to confuse you that Jesus Christ was created, the firstborn of creation. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying here is he's saying the fact that he never was created. And he, even when he became a man, he was not the first one created. Because in John chapter 8 verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So if Jesus was not created, then what does this mean? The word firstborn means the right to rule. Uh, Paul, no doubt, I'm sure he was thinking in his own Jewish background and Jewish culture that the firstborn of the family had all the rights when he was passed on to them. So it has to do with the rights of inheritance here. So what it's saying here is that Christ is the inheritor of all creation. He is the heir of everything. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the creator and made everything. Look what it says. For by him all things were created. What things, Paul? Well, he goes on to say those things in heavens, the things in the earth, the invisible things, the visible things... 
And then he even breaks it down further. Look what he says. Whether there's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Christ is the creator of everything and he has the right to rule over everything because he is the firstborn. So everything was created by him. John chapter 1 verse number 3 says, All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So everything was created by him, through him, and for him. The vastness and the greatness of our universe. I mean, you think about the universe, you think about our world. Did you know that the, the world, the globe, it, that, it's, that it's tilted on such an axis, the, the right amount of degrees on that axis, that we get four seasons and if, if that wasn't tilted that exact way, then we would either all burn up or we'd all freeze to death. We're the exact distance from the sun. There are, there are galaxies and, and, and stars beyond, beyond our wildest imagination. And God created all of that. Jesus created all of that. And he rules and he reigns in all of that. He is the firstborn of all creation. So from the vastness and the greatness of our universe, even down to the smallest and the most invisible things, such as atoms, God rules and reigns over everything. And so when the Bible says that he can make of you a new creation, it doesn't sound so difficult, does it? Because he created everything, the greatness, the vastness, down to the smallest and the most complex, God is capable of doing something amazing in our hearts and our lives. So he is the image of the invisible God in creation. The babe in Bethlehem made it. That's what the Bible says. For by him were what? All things created. Let's look at a second thing here. So not only the image of the invisible God in creation, but the image of the invisible God in supremacy. Look what Colossians 1, 17 through 18 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything he might be preeminent. So see, Christmas is more than a story because it's about the image of the invisible God in supremacy. What do we mean by this? That Christ reigns supreme over all. Notice the text that says he is before all things. Not was, not will be, but presently actively reigning as supreme. He is before all. All things. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus prayed to his Father in the garden in John chapter 17, verse number 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In Revelation 3 14, we read, and it says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus lived as God before he was ever known as Jesus. 
Before he ever came into the world, he existed in eternity past. He is the beginning and the end of Revelation chapter 1. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the root and offspring of David. But Paul here continues this thought about Jesus being supreme. All things hold together. Wow! Without Christ, this world would explode. He holds all things together. Hebrews chapter 1 verse number 3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. That's some power. Look at verse 18 again. Look what he says here. Paul moves from Jesus being supreme over creation to Jesus being supreme over the church. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Notice again, he is the head of the body of the church, not was. When Jesus Christ died, the church did not die. He is the head of the body of the church. Christ resurrected in glory and power over death. And there is none greater than Jesus Christ. He is preeminent, is what Paul says here. Look at this text again. He is the head of the body, the church. Those of you that know Christ, you're, you're part of the body of Christ, you know him, you're part of the church, you're part of his body, as what we even covered in Ephesians, we're all members together of his body. And so Christ is the head, the church belongs to Christ, the church does not belong to me, it does not belong to the elders, the church belongs to Christ, he is the head, he's in charge, he's the one that we submit to. He provides growth for his church. He gives the direction for the church through his word. There's no higher authority in the church than Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. There aren't any equals. There aren't any people in competition. There's no power struggle. Christ alone is the head of the church. But notice this phrase. He is the beginning. He's the originator of his church. The church began with Christ. It wasn't some, some thing that was uh, concocted in a basement somewhere. Christ is the originator of his church because in Ephesians it tells us that Christ loved his church and he gave himself for his church. He died for the church. It's important to him. And so he gives life to the church. He gives it guidance. He is the one who gave birth to church. He brought it into existence. He is the supreme one in his church. But then notice it says, the firstborn from the dead. There it is again, the firstborn. There's that phrase, the firstborn. This does not mean that Christ was the first one to rise from the dead. Because there were several other people that resurrected from the grave before Christ did. How about at his crucifixion, remember? When Christ died, it says the graves were opened. The people came out of the graves and they started walking around in Jerusalem. Does not mean that Christ was the first one to resurrect. But what we're talking about here, that he is the chief one, the highest ranking one, the greatest one, the leading one, the one who has authority. He gained his rank. He gained his exaltation by his resurrection. He reigns supremely over the dead.
He's the firstborn from the dead. So Paul sums this up by saying he is preeminent. There's no one like him. No one can compare to him. A little baby that was born in a manger is like no other. And you think about that. When Christ came into the world, he did not come into the world as a fully grown man. He didn't come into the world as a, as a mighty angel. He came into the world as an infant, helpless, volatile, harmless. And there's no one like him. He's preeminent. He is more than just a story. He is the supreme ruler of the universe, robed in splendor and glory. He is the head of the church in resurrected power. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says. Therefore God has highly exalted him, who? Jesus. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of the Father. So he is the image of the invisible God in supremacy. He reigns supremely. And it's just more than just a story. Here's the third thing. The image of the invisible God in reconciliation. Now I love this part. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Jesus is so much more than just a story. The Christmas story is so much more than that. Because it reveals God to us in creation and supremacy. But he takes it one step further. And actually stepped into his creation to reconcile us back to God. Notice a few things about this reconciliation. Number one, all things in heaven and on earth need to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is needed because the world is at enmity with God. The world and all who dwell in it are under the curse of sin. Psalm uh, verse 7, verse number 11 says, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Colossians 1.21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 10 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the righteous, not the good, but the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, 
We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. John 3.36, Jesus says, And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who does not obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And so Christ stepped into the world because we were sinners, because we had, we had sinned against him. And notice who originated this reconciliation. It was not man, but it was God. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards had this to say about men being enemies of God. He said, they are enemies in their practice. They walk contrary to him. In their enmity against God, they are ex exceeding active. They are engaged in war against God. Indeed, they cannot injure God, for he is so much above them. But yet they do what they can. They oppose themselves to his honor and glory. They oppose themselves to the interest of his kingdom in the world. They oppose themselves to the will and command of God. And they oppose him in his government. They oppose God in his works and in his declared designs. While he is doing one work, they are doing the contrary. God seeks one thing and they seek directly the contrary. They enlist under Satan's banner and are his willing soldiers in opposing the kingdom of God. So man is in need, desperate need of reconciliation because of his sin. And that's why the Christmas story is so much more than just a story about a babe being wrapped in swatting clothes and lying in a manger. Because it's about the image of the invisible God in reconciliation. Secondly, it pleased God to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. You see, this restoration of broken relationships uh, and, and put at, it put at peace the hostile situation between God and man. It's traced back all the way to God. He is the originator of it. And he sent his son, Jesus. It is through God's love that the reconciliation is made possible. He sent his son. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 8, 3 says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8, 19 through 21 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, just a couple days ago, I believe, we had the earthquake that was over there in Alaska. The earth is groaning, eagerly waiting for its redemption. Christ came to reconcile all things unto himself. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Thirdly, peace comes through the blood of his cross. Knowing of God's powerful creation and his power to reconcile all things in his creation, 
we would ask, why? Why would God choose to rescue sinful, lost mankind? I mean, when it comes down to it, with all of the splendor and the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God, what do you and I have to offer? We're sinners. We're corrupt. We're evil. And so why would, why would God be motivated to step into his creation and reconcile us? Why would he choose to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of his cross? Look what Paul says here. Why? Why? To make peace. Peace between who? Peace between God and man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The baby that was born in Bethlehem is more than just a story recorded for us in Luke chapter number 2. This baby, God in the flesh, makes peace between God and man. He reconciles us between sinful man and holy God because of his own infinite sacrifice on the cross. He can reconcile us to God and make peace by the blood of his cross and forgive us of our sin. That's why he became, that's why he was born. Because there was no other way to bring peace between man and God. We sing that uh, Christmas carol, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Hark the herald angels sing. God and sinner reconciled. There's no other way to bring that peace. And so it was through Christ. He's the incom incomparable, the unique, the matchless, the only one who can reconcile man to God. And he did it through the blood. Now I love this. I love this. Look what it says. It says that all the fullness to please, to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He's the creator of everything, whether thrones or dominions. He's the creator of the invisible and the visible. He's creator of everything. And look what it says. Making peace by the blood of whose cross? His. Did you know that Christ is the only one that can actually lay claim to his cross because it belonged to him. He created everything. He owns everything. And for the fact for Christ to own everything and know that he was going to bleed and die and be crucified by the hands of sinful men, he willingly did it through his cross. Evelyn has this attitude now that everything belongs to her. I mean, everything. I mean, stuff that's not even hers. That's mine. No, it's not. But really, can you lay claim to anything? No, because you're not the creator. You're not the originator. You're not the firstborn of anything. But Christ can because it's his cross. 
And he used what he created, he used what he owns to bring about reconciliation to man and God. Let's pray together.